Hello and welcome to Nudge, the podcast that helps us understand how our brains work. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Emma Byrne. Emma is a scientist, a journalist and a public speaker. Her BBC4 Thought episode was voted one of the best of 2013 and she has published in CIO, Forbes, FT and elsewhere. Today we'll cover the psychology behind swearing. We'll look at some studies that reveal how it can make lawyers seem more convincing and how it can make you genuinely more resilient. There is swearing in this episode, obviously, so do not play it in the car with your kids or if you've got anyone young listening. Now, I used to think that swearing was a trait, a free choice, but science suggests that it's not that simple. Instead, studies show that swearing might actually be linked with specific parts of your brain. And there's some research that indicates why someone might be more or less likely to swear based on the makeup of their brain. Here's Emma explaining how the brain and swearing are interlinked. She introduces the story of Phineas Gage, a now very famous American rail constructor whose head-splitting accident taught us a lot about how the brain works. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. The analogy that I use about the brain is it was an argument uh, between the 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 brain is like a blancmange. It is basically an undifferentiated mass that does lots of processing, but it doesn't really matter where in the brain that happens. And those who said the brain is like a trifle, it is a thing that you you have, but there are different parts that have different roles or that do different things, uh, and you can identify what those bits are. And if you remove one of those bits, then you end up with something very different. So you take a spoonful out of a bowl of blancmange, you still have a bowl of blancmange. You take all the sponges out of a trifle and you have, well, I'm not sure what you have left, I think sort of jelly and custard or something. Pretty depressing anyway, whatever it is. Uh, but Phineas Gage was one of the first clinical case studies that showed that the the trifleists uh, were likely to be correct and the blancmangeists were likely not to be. 
the reason being that when he suffered this accident, he was a railroad engineer and he drove a a tamping iron, about a six foot long iron bar, into a hole in a cliffside in order to push down gunpowder. But for whatever reason, when Phineas Gage tamps his iron into this hole, it ignites the powder and blasts this iron bar through his head. Now, most people would assume that someone walking around with a six-foot iron bar through their brain is unlikely to survive, but he actually went on to live for many, many years. Before this injury, Gage had been diligent and hardworking and well-spoken. Afterwards, he became basically just, among other things, a massive swearer. What this iron bar seemed to take away was any sense of reticence or responsibility. Uh, And so he did not bother to moderate his language at any time. And it's the first time that we had a live subject, that the world had seen a live subject with a distinct before and after, where you could say that this behaviour had definitely happened after this particular injury. Now, one could make the argument that after having seen six foot of iron hurtling towards you, then maybe you just spend the rest of your life swearing because it was so fucking terrifying. But we now know from repeated studies that removal of parts of the frontal lobe affects something called executive function. Uh, And executive function is all of that stuff that allows us to not act on our instincts, to not laugh when you see someone who looks a bit odd on the street, or not tell your mother-in-law that her cooking stinks, or not swear at your boss when they're being annoying. All of that stuff that makes us do the things we ought to rather than the things we want to, that's called executive function. And a lot of our ability to do that relies on structures in the frontal lobe. So Phineas Gage showed us that this frontal lobe damage is very specifically uh, related to the idea of losing a degree of self-control. And that chimes with all of the research since that we know that injuries to that part of the brain tend to lead to a loss of executive function. And one of the symptoms of that is prolific swearing. We see it now in dementia, quite a lot of dementia patients, the frontal lobes start to shrink. And also dementia patients do tend to use pretty strong language. Phineas Gage taught us that the brain, as Emma puts it, is more of a trifle. Lots of different interconnected parts rather than one muddled mass. The insight kick-started an era of real discovery in the brain, where scientists quickly learnt all of the sorts of things about the brain that we now know. And one big part that they learnt about was, of course, swearing. One of the scientists inspired by the correct understanding of the brain was Dr. Richard Stevens. I asked Emma to talk us through how his work revealed the weird power that swearing can give us. Yeah, so like the controversy between the the Blamangists and the Trifleists, there was definitely contention until about sort of 20, 30 years ago as to whether or not swearing was good in a crisis, or whether it actually made it worse, whether people were catastrophizing. So Rich Stevens, um, he decided that he wanted to see whether or not swearing was adaptive or maladaptive. Did it help or did it hinder? So he took his students and had them put their hands in a bath of ice cold water and had them hold it in there for as long as possible while either swearing or using a neutral word. And having done this experiment, he found pretty consistently that people can keep their hands in ice water for about 
uh, a third to half as long again if they're swearing than if they're using a neutral word. There is an adaptive response to swearing. It helps you withstand that pain longer. They've since repeated this in his lab at various different ways. So one of the ways that they uh, attempted a manipulation was to try something called minced oaths. These are the things you use when you want to swear and you can't, like, oh, sugar, oh, fudge, oh, Jeepers Christy, to see if they would have an effect. So if it was the intent to swear rather than the actual action of swearing that helped. And it, it, it is the actual swearing. So sugar does not do it for you. Sugar is a, it doesn't even have a placebo effect, unfortunately. They also looked, for example, at whether or not uh, it was something to do with the emotions that swearing might be engendering. So is it to do with the fact that swearing might be a signal that you're angry? Does anger make you better able to withstand pain? So they had people play either a, a first-person shooter or a golfing game to see which emotional state made them better at withstanding pain. And the first-person shooter seems to to help, whereas golfing doesn't. They have looked at... Recently, I was involved in a study that he did um, where we tried to come up with uh, alternative swear words de novo. Um, and we were pretty certain that it wouldn't be possible to come up with something that would kill pain just because it sounds a bit swearing-like, partly because of the previous results on minced oaths, but also because there is no cognitive connection with, or no emotional connection with an entirely new word. We see this when people learn a new language. They tend to use swear words in the second language very inexpertly, just because they don't understand the emotional impact of it. And lo and behold, if you get people to say twizpipe or fouch, they don't have anywhere near as, uh, or in fact, they don't have at all any pain relief compared to neutral words. So swearing has to be the real deal, and it has to be swearing that you particularly find emotive. But in those cases, swearing does help you withstand prolonged pain. I think this is an incredible finding. Swearing can genuinely increase the length you can keep your hands in icy water. And it's not just any swear words. The stronger the swear, the better the resilience. So fuck is better than shit and shit is better than bum. As Emma says, the same effect was noted when students were asked to play a calming golf game or an aggression inducing shoot 'em up game. Those who played the golf game could only keep their hands in ice-cold water for 117 seconds, while those who played the shoot-em-up game could keep their hands in for 195 seconds. Now this starts to explain why boxers really do perform better when they're angry. But swearing doesn't just give you more resilience. Emma also shares how it can actually make someone appear more trustworthy. For certain types of argument, and particularly from certain types of people, a degree of swearing shows a a commitment, an emotional commitment to that position. There is a danger that in using language that is more indirect or more reserved, that people you know, don't recognise the emotional import of what you're talking about. And skilled communicators use swearing very well. They you know, might not be consciously, but in the same way that any sort of skilled rhetorician doesn't necessarily write down everything they're going to say beforehand and rehearse it, but they have a good idea of how best to make their points. Judicious swearers 
are also very good at knowing when a swear word is likely to signal you know a strongly held feeling uh you know anger frustration sadness um or when to hold back when they're speaking to an audience that will see this as you know particularly alienating and it is a it's a huge skill you need a, a very advanced theory of mind but in courtroom settings for example it has been found that witness statements that have a degree of swearing in them tend to be seen as less rehearsed more spontaneous swearing is incredibly authentic uh, it's usually something that is drawing on both the the parts of your brain that normally do language, but also the parts of the brain that are about dealing with emotion and interpersonal relationships. And it would be a shame to cheapen that. So, yeah, you, use it with care um, and and practice and watch for other um, other good examples. The, the biggest example I can think of goes back decades uh which is live aid and bob, bob geldof saying give us your fucking money do you know that was that was <laughs> one of the first sort of prime time swears that was you know there was probably a bit of daily mail mumbling into the beard about you know who who is this this shambolic rock star swearing on tv but it, it really resonated so there is definitely space for it Emma cites some really fascinating studies in her book which reveal that testimonies in court sound more believable when swear words are included. I think that's why slogans like Dollar Shave Clubs, uh, Our Blades Are Fucking Good and Brew Dogs Punk As Fuck Beer are perhaps more convincing and even more compelling. In fact, Dr. Corey Shearer and Brad Sagrin found that even mild swears like damn, for example, make messages more convincing and more memorable. Swearing can genuinely help your marketing, your communications and even your trustworthiness. But is there a limit? And could we be overdoing it with our swears? I'm slightly worried that we're about to hit the um, the Tony Blair hand gestures moment for swearing in that around the sort of early 90s, I think it's research on how hand gestures could help nail a message how how we use naturally but i think it's desmond morris's man watching originally talks about this is the different types of hand movements that we use in order to enforce or underscore certain types of argument and the problem was was that when that became codified when people started getting coached in how to use hand gestures it lost its degree of authenticity and i think now we tend to almost see those sort of hand gestures almost like it's sort of a it's a performance they don't have the same spontaneous character that we used to think of them as having so i worry that there's this idea that swearing makes you look more passionate swearing makes you look more emotionally involved in the position that you're taking but that if we rehearse this too much it's going to lose its power as that sort of signal so i think the takeaway here is to perhaps not swear at your boss asking for a pay rise it might not land in the right way but what about swearing in the workplace in general is it a good or a bad thing and how does it differ from country to country i asked emma it is definitely dependent on the profession that you find yourself in actually i have to say i'm i don't have I haven't come across any research to back this up, but I think that the kinds of workplaces that are predominantly coded as male tend to be the sweariest ones. 
So things like uh, transport drivers, construction workers, software engineering. Um, there's a very nice study in the book about the way that uh, in a New Zealand software firm, the way that swearing was used is bonding. Because swearing is so very culturally dependent based on your first language, um, countries that tended to have more monoglot immigrants uh, or monoglot colonizers tend to have a stronger swearing culture than those that had more polyglot immigrants or polyglot colonizers. In the more polyglot countries, you get less swearing because you can never quite be sure that if you as a Spanish person are using what seems like a perfectly reasonable English approximation of Spanish swearing, that that is going to sound to the Italian speaker, who is also speaking English to you, but they're using some some English approximation of their Italian swearing, that somehow in that translation, what was supposed to be moderately offensive comes off as, you know, ridiculously mild. Or, worse still, what's supposed to be moderately offensive comes across as absolutely appalling. Um, so the the danger of inadvertently causing offence or inadvertently making yourself look a bit stupid uh, is much greater in countries with more first, you know, a greater spread of first languages. And one of the researchers I cite a lot in the book is a guy called John Mark Dewala, who I think himself speaks about six languages, but studies people who are multiply polyglot. And he has found that, you know, the earlier you learn a language, a second language or a third language, the more likely you are to understand its emotional impact. But if you learn languages after puberty, you never really get the same emotional relationship to swearing. So I think in workplaces where it's pretty clear that everyone is likely to have learned English before adolescence and where they are coded as predominantly male, jocular abuse and banter tends to be really common. Barbara Plester and Janet Holmes go into this in a lot of detail, and I talk about them a lot in the book. Um, but between you know sort of case studies and, and being in workplaces and immersing themselves in different workplace cultures in in factory work and in software engineering work, they showed these really skillful ways that swearing is used to motivate and to bond. And it's it's very commonplace, but only in certain types of cultural setting. The research Emma references has shown how swearing can help build teams, help people work more effectively together, and even make colleagues feel closer and more productive. But language and culture also need to be considered. Different languages and different cultures have drastically different views towards swearing. Swearing, for example, is so embedded in Russian languages' rules of inflection that there is literally an infinite number of ways to swear in Russian. While in Japanese, uh, swearing is almost non-existent. There is actually no equivalent word for shit or piss in Japanese. In fact, all sorts of weird cultural differences exist when looking at swearing across borders. In Germany, you can be fined up to €2,500 for calling somebody an old pig. Whereas in Holland, uh, calling a police officer a cancer sufferer can net you two years in prison. Now that's cultural differences. But what about gender differences? I asked Emma to explain the differences in how swearing is perceived depending on your gender. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty mad at a guy called Richard Allistry, 
Uh, he wrote a book in the 1600s, 1700s, not, not a historian, must make that clear. Um, but there was a book that he wrote called The Lady's Calling, which apparently was incredibly impactful, quite a bestseller. And in that he says, there is no sound more odious to the ears of God than the sound of an oath in the mouth of a woman. I was like, all right, so, you know, you can, there are people dying of the plague or children dying in hunger and poverty. But no, if I say damn, then then God's going to have a cry. Um, so, but he was hugely influential, or at least he was prototypical of that debate, or at least that position, that women had a role, a duty in society to raise children with a strong moral sense to demonstrate that they themselves had a strong moral sense and as such they ought not to know these bad words not only should they not know use them they should not know them which is bizarre when you think about it you know these are people who are likely to be going through childbirth they are going to be aware of um fucking shitting and bloody cunts it's, it's got to be said by the time their children are uh, at least a year old I mean, I literally, this morning, I went to, there is a local factory that is a baker's that has been devastated by the coronavirus shutdown. So they are doing, they're selling sort of contact-free bread from their factory outlet. And I, as I cycled up there, one of the van drivers uh, was outside and he turned around to someone inside and he said, oh, you got to watch your language, there's a lady present. And it's just like, I just want to say, I wrote the fucking book on swearing. But this attitude still persists today as though women hearing swearing would be detrimental somehow to my to my equilibrium. There is a great piece of research. I mean, I say great, it's depressing, but a, a very straightforward and uh, interesting piece of research from the early 2000s. Uh, in which Robert O'Neill from the University of Louisiana, so uh, he sent out questionnaires asking people how bad they thought particular swearing phrases were. He asked whether or not they thought the person using that phrase was trustworthy, whether or not they were likely to be powerful or in control of their emotions, whether or not you'd want to date them. But the way that he controlled, the, the, the experimental manipulation, let's say, was in half of the uh, copies of the questionnaire. You know, all of the odd-numbered swear words were purportedly from men, and all of the even-numbered swear words were purportedly from women. And in the other half of the sample, it was the other way around. And he found that consistently, men and women alike judge women more harshly for using the exact same swear words as men. There's also studies of women who are going through terminal cancers or long-term health conditions. And those who swear most tend to lose their friends, whereas men who are going through similar conditions like testicular cancer tend to bond more when they do more swearing. So we have this huge double standard. But that said, women use swearing instrumentally. They use it. Um, there's lots of brilliant evidence from corpus studies, both women speaking aloud to one another, um, but also occasionally in workplaces to men in order to demonstrate sort of either status or that they can be trusted and are one of the team. Um, but women do use swearing as much as men, but they tend to use milder forms and they tend to be much more careful about when and where they swear. Uh, there are certain places where it's more acceptable to swear. Uh, women are less likely to swear in front of complete strangers, for example, and much less likely to swear in front of men than they are to swear in front of other women. 
So we have these things that have influenced our swearing behaviour as women, uh, which does mean that we, yeah, we don't quite get to use it so much to help deal with things, to help vent our frustration. But hopefully that is starting to change. But so far, we're still waiting on the evidence for that. As Emma says, women who swear are more likely to be perceived as unstable or untrustworthy, while men using the exact same words are seen as jocular and strong. The study by O'Neill showed that women using the same swear words as men are consistently rated also as more offensive. In fact, women are unfairly discriminated against by using all types of language. When linguist Deborah Tannen studied male and female conversational styles, she found that men are more likely than women to state their beliefs, their desires, and their intentions directly. They're also more likely to interrupt with contradictions, whereas women respect turn-taking, and they're only likely to really interrupt when agreeing with the speaker. Now, these are large studies that generalise lots of people, but if there is one takeaway, I think it's that men, like myself, could probably benefit from just shutting the fuck up every once in a while. But finally, before I do that, let's answer the question that you're probably all wondering. Should you swear more? Well, Emma had a great response to this in her book. She says, swearing is like mustard. It's a great ingredient, but it makes a lousy meal. Okay, that is all for today. Please, if you've enjoyed today's episode, pick up a copy of Emma's book called Swearing is Good For You. It's not only a funny and enjoyable read, but it also highlights some clear societal problems with our subconscious biases towards gender. I've chucked a link to the book in the show notes so you can go and grab a copy. Now, I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. To make sure you don't miss that episode, click the link in the show notes to sign up to my mailing list. I will only email you, I promise, twice a month with an email telling you about the latest show to go live. Um, And if you want, you can reply to those emails and get in touch with me directly. You can also tweet me at P underscore Agnew. I would love to know what you think about the show. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge. Nudge.